This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of this talk is What Can an Adulteress Teach Us About Happiness? Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and the Project of Literature. So what I'd like to do is to talk about, actually, in this order, first of all, starting with, the, with kind of the big umbrella, what is the project of literature? But I want us to look at the project of literature, and then I want to take a, a glance at the classical, the medieval, and the, modern, and the modern way of looking at literature. But we're only going to take little snatches. And I want to just say right off the bat, I want to talk about my great indebtedness to Dr. Louise Cowan, who is actually my alma mater is the University of Dallas, which is a small private Catholic college in Texas. And she is the founding, she in a sense had the founding vision for the core curriculum of the University of Dallas and how through these works of literature, but also through studying history and art, et cetera, you would shape the human person. So Louise Cowan is an alumna of Vanderbilt University. So it was a great honor just at the beginning of, in the middle of September, to give this presentation also at Vanderbilt University. So I am very much indebted to her work, but also to some of the insights that come from other writers. So thank you to Dr. Callan. Okay, so what's the project of literature in Western civilization? Why does literature even exist? Would you say that, art of, that literature is an artifact of culture, that there's culture first, and then this culture that is created produces works of literature? Or would you say that literature is actually what's shaping the culture, that it's the driving force behind culture? I think that's what I would like to propose. That word culture is a beautiful word. You're probably familiar with words like cultivate, right? The center, if you look at the root of the word, you'll find cult, cultus. Not that creepy kind of, you know, scary, weird cult stuff, but cult, cultus, cult meaning worship. So cult really deals with what we worship, what we value, what we hold dear. And that, in a sense, is what culture is intended to perpetuate across the generations, right? What we worship, what we value, what we hold dear. Many of you in this room, your vocation is probably marriage. And so it's wonderful to see you here tonight, whether right? you're interested in literature and culture, because what kind of books are you gonna have your kids read? You know, when they're, little, when they're little, what kind of stories are you gonna read them so that as they're falling asleep, they're gonna be thinking about, what are they gonna be thinking about? The wolf, the bear, the princess, the king, right? You're shaping the way they think about the meaning of life through these stories. So cultivate, Right, is what you're doing. This is what culture does, it cultivates. Cultivates the human heart, cultivates the human soul, the memory, the imagination. What we sow, what we tend, what we reap, that's what we're dealing with when we talk about culture. And what is it that we will grow then on the fields of our hearts, on the hearts of your children, what will you grow? Will you grow spiny, prickly things like thorns? Or will you grow flowers and wheat, right? Something that feeds all. I would like for us to look at what is considered 
classical literature, not in the sense of like the classical period, right? Not classical antiquity, but classical literature in terms of what we mean, what we mean, what we mean by classical literature is literature that's tried and true, that is going to be passed on generation to generation to generation. All truly great literature seeks to answer one question. And of course, that one question has a host of other questions that come from it, right? And I would like to propose that the one question that it seeks to answer is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And the best of all literature answers these perennial questions. And they were actually questions that were posed by Plato. What does it mean to be noble, to be just, to be honorable, to be good? You know, I was so happy to hear uh, Michael and Hunter telling us that the previous Aquinas lecture just last week was about virtue, right? Because it's the same question. I'm sure Father talked about this, that the root of the word virtue is veer, man, right? What does it mean to be human? To be human, the most human, the most manly of men are virtuous, right? The most human of women, the most feminine of women are virtuous. Okay, so that's what literature answers this, this question, what is, it between, what is it to be virtuous? Now, if you look at Aristotle in his rhetoric and his poetics, and then also at Cicero, right, the great rhetorician, they will tell you that rhetoric, the poetics, anything poetic, has three aims. So this applies to literature. What are the great three aims of literature? First is to instruct, right, to teach you something, right, to develop your your capacity to reason. So we talk about this aspect of literature as logos, right? The philosophy, the argument behind what this piece of literature is doing. So that's the first purpose, to instruct, right? That's why you read your kids' stories, because they're learning how to read, they're learning how to think, they're learning how sentences are put together, okay, etc. But they're also learning something more than that, right? They're learning something about good and evil. That's one of the most basic things. The second reason, of course, is to delight, right? We, we engage with literature to relax because there's something about it that, um, that makes us, that delights us, right? That entertains us. But it's not just this kind of shallow entertainment. There's a deeper form of delight that we, that we encounter in literature. And so the Greek word that they use to describe this element of delight in literature is ethos. Right, that there's a spirit, a character behind the work of literature that draws us to desire something. So think about the really famous um, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? His, his books become movies, why? Because there's this spirit, this character, this ethos behind them that move us, right? The heroes, the dilemma, right? The temptation. This is something we can all relate to. Okay, so to instruct, to delight, and third, literature would not be literature without it. The rhetorician would not be a good rhetorician without it. To move, to inspire. That's what great literature does. It doesn't just leave you sitting there. It makes you want to do something, to become something. This element in the Greek is called pathos. Pathos. So it's this, this tugging at your heart, appealing to your capacity to feel in the most human types of ways. This movement, this desire for the good, and then this repulsion 
this disgust with what is evil. And all of these logos, ethos, pathos, instructing, delighting, moving, inspiring, they are employed to one end in great literature. And what is it? To shape the moral imagination. To shape the moral imagination. Why? Because when you live this according to a, a properly formed moral imagination, you become more human. So there's a Thomistic principle upon which this talk is based. And it is this. Thomas says that before you act, you have to be able to conceive of the action in your imagination. Makes total sense, right? We've all had this experience. Before you're able to act, you have to be able to conceive of the action in your imagination. So think about this, right? Um, you know, your, your, your significant other is having, is, their birthday's coming up, right? So you wanna, you wanna surprise them. So you have to think about, okay, how am I gonna surprise him or her? You start thinking, using your memory, your imagination, what are they like, what would make them happy? Right, then you plot it out. You think, oh, I, we could do this, we could do that, we could do this, right? So you plot it out in your imagination. Now, the wicked do the same thing, right? How can I steal that car, right? They have to plot it out in their imagination first. So before we can become noble, just, honorable, good, heroic, we have to have those things presented to our imagination, right? Characters who show us, who act with nobility, justice, honor, purity, goodness, heroism. Now, I'm gonna start with this uh, little example. And I don't know, just looking at the crowd, I'm not sure many of you will have. I know maybe perhaps the girls in the room, I mean the young ladies, but I don't know about the guys, okay? Can you raise your hand if you have encountered Little House on their prairie books or read them? <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so some of you maybe bleeding over from your sisters. Or maybe you were the big brother and you read to your sisters, okay? So, you know, we kind of take these books for granted, but there, there's a real something, there's something significant happening in these books. So if you actually look at the, the Little House of the Prairies series as a whole, what will you find? You'll find that Laura Ingalls Wilder found herself in a home, a family that was built on self-sacrifice. So I don't know if you remember this, but there was this one time where, you know, Pa's always working, right? Pa's always working, working, working. Because he, you know, he, I think, I'm sure he wanted to have guys. I mean, he wanted to have sons, but he only had daughters, right? So Pa has to do all of the work. And then he basically is supporting Ma and the girls and they help with the cow and all that kind of stuff. But he's doing all the hard labor and the, and the harvesting, right? And so he would have to actually travel sometimes and then come back to, you know, because the work was farther away, then he'd come back. So one of these times, there's a big harvest and, you know, he's got a lot of money. He's got like, like ten dollars, and so they the whole family travels into town, right? And Pa is saying to Ma, "Look, you, you need to get more material so you can make yourself a new dress." And she's like, "Oh yeah, I want to get I want to make get this material so I can get make some dresses for the girls." And now we're going to hand down the shoes. So Mary is going to hand her shoes down to Laura. Laura's going to hand her shoes down to Carrie, or what Carrie gets old enough. So now we're going to buy new shoes for Mary, etc. Right? So they're having all this conversation, and then um, Ma says to Pa, "Yeah, and Pa, you need a new coat." Right, so they talk about all this stuff. So they all like jump, they get in the carriage, they go to town, and they go to the, little, the general store, right? So they're so excited, they're all running around the general store, and the kids want candy, all that kind of stuff. And then they buy the stuff, pack it up, bring it home. They start unpacking the stuff when they get home, right? 
And Ma looks at Pa, she says, you didn't get the coat. And then uh, Pa looks at Ma, he says, you didn't get material for your dress. And then they start, the girls, Laura notices, right? Laura's writing the books. Everything they got was for their children. I love this scene, there's this one scene, and then Pa still got his same tattered up coat, okay? And, um, and you can see, you can see this beautiful, this beautiful affection uh, between Ma and Pa. So Ma is uh, putting Charles' coats on, right? So um, Caroline is her name. So Caroline's putting on Pa's coat. He's going out into the, you know, into the storm or whatever. So she's tucking him in, you know, she's got his scarf in she, and she's pulling it tight. And she says, oh, Charles, I wish you had a new coat. And he grabs her <laughs> and he says, Caroline, I wish you had diamonds, <laughs> right? Which is like, it, there's just, so you can see that, um, like Laura saw, right? Laura saw the beautiful love between her parents. So I think this is, this is part of what was shaping her own moral imagination. Okay, so one of the things that I really, really liked, this is actually one of my favorite scenes. So this is on the banks of Plum Creek, okay? So they're going to live in this new little house because they had to keep moving to where, you know, they thought they could make a living, right? So on the banks of Plum Creek, they live in this little dugout house. And then if you walk, they have to walk, like, I don't know, it'd probably be like a three block walk down to the creek. So when they first settle in, they go to the creek and they, they wade in the creek and they swim in the creek a little bit, they have fun in the creek. And so Laura loves the creek, but her dad tells her, look, Girls, you may never go, never, 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 may you go to the creek by yourself, right? Because obviously it's dangerous, right? So he doesn't want them to drown, something bad to happen. So that was the rule in the house, one of the rules, never go to the creek by yourself, okay? But one day, Laura, you can see when you read her books, you'll realize she's a little bit mischievous and adventuresome, right? So she, she decides she's gonna go to the creek. So Laura starts heading to the creek, but she's just playing by herself. Nobody knows that she's gonna go and try to go to the creek. So she tries to go to the creek, and then in the way, I think there's like this weird, she finds this weird brown blob of an animal. She like gets a stick and she pokes it and like kind of hisses at it, right? And so she like can't go to the creek. So she goes back home. And then, you know, it gets dark at night and they're getting dinner ready and they have dinner, have dinner. Everybody has dinner. And then they all clean up from dinner. And then they, Laura and Mary, they sleep in this little, um, what you call it? It's kind of like a, loft right they go up this ladder and they go into their loft and um they kneel down and they say their prayers with pa so they say their prayers pa comes back down and then pa and ma are sitting at the kitchen table and then they move over to the window and they're just talking right and laura can hear that ma and pa are still downstairs talking so laura gets up out of bed climbs down the ladder and she goes up to her dad and so Laura's little, right? Her dad's a pretty big guy, right? He's like builds houses and you know works in fields and stuff. So Laura goes up to her father and she goes right up to his knee. And she like kind of leans on his knee and she says, Pa, I gotta tell you something. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Like that was his nickname for her. <laughs> and she says, Well, you know, today I was gonna go to the creek. And um I guess I should be punished, right? So there she is, and it's getting dark, right? So she can't really see her father's face. But she's leaning on her father's knee, and she's waiting for her punishment. And you know what she writes? She writes, and Laura leaned on Pa's knee 
and she could feel how strong and how kind he was. Isn't that amazing? This little girl, she's waiting for her punishment, and all she feels is how strong and how kind her father is. Right? Isn't that gorgeous? He's like, she doesn't know this, but he's like an image of God the Father, right? And that's what every man should be to his wife, to his children, right? Is this image of God the Father. And so look at this. This book, right? Little House on the Prairie, on the banks of Plum Creek, right? It's shaping the moral imagination of little girls, right? But this is what my and pa should be like. I should, I should do the right thing, right? If I ever break a rule, I should go and fess up. Right, so there's this, this, beautiful, this beautiful sense that's created through the literature, right? Through the whole of the story. You need the whole of the story to understand the purpose, right? Okay, there's, there's, all, there's all kinds of other great literature. Has anyone ever heard of this? Now, this is a Chinese little story. It's called The Empty Pot. Anyone ever heard of that? Okay, this is another really cool story. So let me just give you a quick little summary here. So there's this little, there's this little boy who's living in a Chinese village. His name is Ting. And Ting is like a horticulturist, but they didn't have that in there. Um, he was really good at plants and flowers and seeds and all this kind of stuff. He understood soil and water and moisture. So he was like a child prodigy with plants, okay? So meanwhile, the emperor. The emperor does not have an heir. He does not have a son. And so what he does is he calls all the young boys of the village to come forward, to come to the emperor's palace one day, okay? So all the boys get dressed up, and they're like, so excited. Actually, I think it's all children. I think it's men and women. I'm not sure. I think it is boys and girls. They all come. And they all come, and they're all dressed up, and they're so excited. And see the emperor. So the emperor from his men, from his magisterial palace, he says, okay, children, I, don't, I do not have an heir, and from amongst you, I'm going to choose an heir. And this is what you must do. I have these seeds. And Tina's is like, whoa, seeds, I'm going to win. Okay, so I have these seeds. And what I would like you to do is, plant them and bring them back to me one year from now, okay? So all the kids are like, oh, okay. So he starts handing out the seeds and they come up one by one and he gives them each a seed. So there must have been some kind of, anyway, so he gives them each a seed. And then Ting starts working on his little seed and he's like, can't, he's like, what is wrong with this? This does not work. So he like transplants it, right? Meanwhile, he sees his neighbor and his neighbor's is growing. So his other neighbor, his neighbor, the other kid there, this is growing, right? The girl over there, oh my goodness, she's got a bloom. Right? He's like freaking out, right? So he talks to the dad, he's like, yeah, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And he's like, look, you're doing the best you can. It sounds like you're doing the right things. Keep doing what you're doing. Okay, so he keeps doing what he's doing. Right? Meanwhile, the year's going by, and he's like getting super upset and sad because everybody else's plan is growing, and this is not. Okay, then it's time, the years pass, and it's time now to come to see the emperor. And Ting has this pot, and it's basically just dirt, right? There's nothing. It's called the, that's why it's called the empty pot, because it's just like dirt with no real plant. And he looks around, and everybody's getting dressed, and he's like, he's like, you know, he's asking his dad, should I go? He said, yeah, you should go, because you tried your best. You need to go. The emperor wants you to go. He gave you the seed, you need to go. So he's like, okay, I'm gonna go. He's stressed, he's sad, right? And all the other kids have these gorgeous plants and flowers and they're smiling, and they're all dressed up, and so they're all, okay. And then you see the emperor from his magisterial palace. And the emperor is looking out, and he's frowning, right? All the kids are smiling with their big flowers. He's frowning. 
And he sees Ting with his empty pot. And he points to him and he says, you, go up here. And all the other kids are like, why didn't I get picked? My cat looks awesome. And then he talks to Ting. And he says to him, you will be my heir. I don't know where all of you got your seeds, but all the seeds I gave you were cooked. <laughs> right? So this is, this is kind of an amazing story it's to shape a child's imagination, right? This whole idea that honesty is what is most needed in a leader, right? Honesty is what is needed in a king. And so, yeah, that's just another example. I'm sure if you think about this, you can think of examples from your own childhood of these types of stories. Okay. So that was a preface, right? That's the project of literature. To answer the question, what does it mean to be human? How can I be noble, just, honorable, pure, etc.? So now what I'd like to do is contextualize um, Anna Karenina within the larger project of literature. So I'd like to start with talking about classical literature. Then I'm going to talk about medieval literature. And then, of course, Anna Karenina falls into modern literature. So I'm just going to take a few things, and again, depending heavily on the work of Louise Cowan. So we're going to focus on the feminine, right? Because that's the figure, Anna. There's something in the poetic universe symbolized by the feminine. Think about that. There's something in the poetic universe symbolized by the feminine, some other law, some grace. There's something symbolized by woman that points beyond strict logic, strict rationality. Think of these figures, Helen of Troy. She has this dignity, this beauty that causes this fearful 10-year war in the fall of a city. Dido, right? Dido and Aeneas. Eve and Adam, right? Eve, Helen, Dido, Eve. They symbolize it. They symbolize this something beyond, right? They're, they're sacred figures unto themselves, laws unto themselves. And so you have to ask yourself, right, why woman? Why is it that woman is so captivating? You know, that men become, you see this in literature, right? Men, men become weak in the knees, right? They become obsessed. They have, to, they have to do something to win. They give everything to win this woman over. And then we also see symbols. And they play, they play into part of the symbolism that we find in literature. So the Greeks speak of Mother Earth and Father Sky. And really what we come to realize is that great authors examine with us and reveal to us aspects of the human psyche, aspects of reality, right? Doesn't that make sense? That, um, that, that woman would be related to the Earth, right? Mother Earth. And then Father Sky, right, that, that which is above. Because the earth is what's fertile, right? The earth is what gives new life. And then the sky is up above. So in classical literature, what else do we find about women? They're tied up with knowledge. Think of, again, Eve. How is Eve tied up with knowledge? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pandora and the box. Athena. Goddess of wisdom, teacher of heroes. So in classical literature, it's this feminine task. Education is a feminine task. You have woman bestowing wisdom, enculturating the young into the community, inspiring hearts into the truth. 
And isn't there something particularly fitting about this, right? Women who are associated, of course, with the beautiful are entrusted with the true. This idea of the union of the beautiful and the true in woman, right? And also the good is in there, right? She teaches her children how to be good. So woman in classical literature is connected to the agapic. So the remember agape is the unconditional love. It's divine love that is the giving of love. Right? That's what we, that agapic love is the giving of love. That's what woman is connected to in classical literature. Man, on the other hand, is connected with not agapic love, but erotic love. Not erotic in the sense of sensual, lustful, even though it can include that, but erotic in the sense of the seeking of love, the questing for love, right? Um, romantic human love is connected to eros, um, erotic love. So notice this is analogous to this idea of wisdom is something to be bestowed, just like love is something to be bestowed. And Wisdom is something that is quested for, just like love is something that is quested for. So in classical literature, that's the paradigm, right? Woman and the agapic, man and the erotic. So what does classical literature do within this paradigm? It will sometimes invert the paradigm so that you will recognize something's wrong, right? It, it flags you. So when you find a woman who is in who, who is seeking, a woman who is questing, a woman in the erotic mode, you know that she's in trouble. So for instance, think of Clytemnestra. So in, in um, Aeschylus's Oresteia, she is, Clytemnestra is the wife of Agamemnon, but she's having this adulterous affair with Agistos. And so the two of them together, what do they do? They plot the murder of Agamemnon. And then you have Orestes and, and um, Electra, the, the, the progeny, right, the son and the daughter, and they have to plot how to avenge their father's murder, right? Okay, so that's one figure, Clytemnestra. And then there's also Phaedra, Phaedra who falls, who's a married woman again, and she falls in love with Hippolytus. Or, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures, you remember Potiphar's wife and Joseph, right? Joseph goes to work for um, the Pharaoh, and then Potiphar, who's like one of the governors or a high up guy, his wife, you know, is like, hitting on Joseph and you're like, something's wrong with her, right? So same kind of thing, something's wrong with her. And then probably one of the most disturbing female figures in all of classical literature is Medea. Remember that, that horrific story? She uh, butchers her two sons and feeds them to their father, right? In a form of vengeance. So these women questing, seeking in the erotic mode, we recognize there's something incredibly disturbing, terribly wrong with them. Okay. Now, that's classical literature. Let's look at medieval literature. There's a, um, a scholar named Denis de Rougemont. Denis de Rougemont, he wrote a book called Love in the Western World. And this is a particular aspect of the medieval literature that I'd look, like to look at. It's his view of something, he says that something went wrong in the medieval romances, in, in chivalric romances. What is it that he says went wrong? He says that there's a disproportionate exaltation of passion. Okay, little clarification here. 
between the difference between sensuality and passion. So sensuality is basically it's normal of the body. It's something good. It's part of genuine love, right? So, but it needs purification, right? So the ideal would be chaste, married love, right? So obviously that's a sexual love because it's supposed to have, you're supposed to be progeny, it's supposed to be fruitful. The best description I've heard of, of Christian marriage or Christian um, sexuality is that it's characterized by modesty and reverence. Isn't that beautiful? That, that a Catholic marriage is characterized by modesty and reverence. Right? So that's the Christian ideal. Sensuality is something that needs to be purified, but it's good. Sensuality is different from passion. So passion is not lust, even though that's how we understand it today. But passion in the sense, for the medievals, of being in love with being in love. We can kind of relate to this, right? Just for a second, think about popular music. How much of popular music is about being in love? Like a ton of it, right? How much about how much of popular music is about um, you know raising children and being faithful in marriage, even though there are struggles and difficulties, and the other person is being a jerk, and then you know dying faithful to each other? A lot of music about that. No, right? So it's the same kind of thing, right? That we've carried on this being in love with being in love. But Denis de Rousmont puts it even more pointedly. He says that the exaltation of passion is the dream of being a god unto oneself. Right? Because that's what happens when you're falling in love. You feel like a god, right? Because the other person is treating you like a god or a goddess, right? And he says it's the sacralization of the profane and the profanation of the sacred, right? Which is diabolical. That's what the devil does. Everything is inverted with diabolical. So he calls it seeking death. Have you ever thought of it that way? That this being in love with being in love, trying to be a god unto oneself, is actually seeking death. Um, it's so funny, in Sense and Sensibility, by Jane Austen, if you've read that, um, this little girl, I forgot her name, she says, so she's just a young girl, and she says, she's reading this literature, and she says, oh, to be as Guinevere, to be as Heloise or Juliet, and her mom looks at her and she says, dear, those women didn't come to a very good end, right? She's like, you're not thinking, right? So one of the best homilies I've ever heard in my life was preached in our um, chapel at the convent by Father John Rock, who was a Jesuit, and he worked side by side with Ratzinger in the CDF. And this is what Father Rock said in one of his homilies. He said, the love of Tristan and Isolde, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, the love of Romeo and Juliet, says to the world, be damned. Whoa, have we ever thought of it that way? The love of Tristan and Isolde, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, the love of Romeo and Juliet, says to the world, be damned. Now. You might not have noticed this when you were forced to read Romeo and Juliet in seventh grade, but do you know what? There are studies on this. That one of the words he uses the most frequently in Romeo and Juliet is the word to, T-O-O. Because the, the point, right, this, this is too quick, too exciting. Too, too, the, if, you, if you look at the, the dialogues between Romeo and Juliet, the word to is used all the time. Why? Because Shakespeare's point is that this is a very immature, self-centered love. And Romeo and Juliet are only worshiping themselves through the other. 
Same thing with Tristan and Isolde, with Lancelot and Guinevere. The other becomes a mere means through which I worship myself. And so this is why it says to the world, be damned. Think about this. It's a rejection of reality, right? Because what is the reality? The reality that is that love is not just about me being worshipped, right? The reality is that love is about self-sacrifice. And not only is it a rejection of reality, it's this kind of entrance into my own dream world. So I forsake my real responsibilities so I can live in this kind of self-indulgent way according to my own dreams. I hate to use this example, but it's fitting because it, it kind of, it shows us what's happening to some extent in the moral imaginations of people today. The rejection of reality, the rejection of relationship, the refusal of community is actually part of what this seeking death is. So for instance, a rejection of family, a rejection of social responsibility. What is in a sense the most egregious example of this that I think some, touches so many of our own lives? Divorce, right? So my parents were divorced. Um, and one of the sisters actually in my community, was, her parents are also divorced. And she was saying, sister, there's this great book called Primal Loss. So I thought, okay, let me pick that up, right? And you know what it is? It's actually stories of people, adult children who come from divorced families. So kind of like, it helps you to realize you're, what you're experiencing is something that other people are also experiencing. So there was a particularly powerful image that one of these adults, adult children of divorce, shared. And he was saying, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, you're all on a plane, you're on a family trip, and you're on this plane, and you're all going somewhere together. And in the middle of the plane ride, um, he said, like my dad decided he was gonna get off the plane. He puts it on autopilot, and he takes the only parachute, opens the, opens the plane door, you know, messing up the cabin pressure for all the rest of us, and jumps out the door and says, bye, see y'all, good luck, right? So this is what, in the medieval romances, Denis de Rougemont was saying went wrong. It was this exaltation, like this guy would become the hero instead of the self-centered person who perhaps for some reason is making these irresponsible choices. So why is it a seeking of death? Because isn't, think about society. Think about our society today, right? Is it in good shape? Like on a scale of one to 10, would you give it a 10? A five? A four? <laughs> Why is society not in good shape? Is the family in good shape? Isn't the family the building block of society? When there are strong families, there will be strong societies. Like look at families, family strong? Would you give family a 10? A five? A four? What's the building block? What holds a family together? Marriage. Marriage is the institution that holds the family together, right? When marriages are strong, families are strong. When families are strong, societies are strong. But how strong are, how strong are marriages? Would you give them a 10, a five, a four, right, a two? And it's this whole idea here that when we refuse to live in reality, when we reject relationship, when we reject community, when we reject family, when we reject morality and societal ethics, what are we seeking as a society? We're seeking death. 
We're seeking death. And so this is the prelude to now our finally speaking about Anakuna now. Because in fact, this is what Tolstoy was seeking to do in Anakunina, right, as a modern, right? He's building upon what came before him, classical literature, medieval literature, and now this modern literature. So Tolstoy was Russian Orthodox. He published Anakunina in 1877. And what you find if you look at the structure of the novel is an artistic vision that is deeply moral. Now, Dostoevsky, who may be the favorite of some of you in this room, he's more metaphysical. Tolstoy is who you go to if you want to find something deeply moral, right? An artistic vision that's deeply moral. What is the logos? What is the ethos underlying Anna Kernina? It's this. Marriage is the foundation of society. Marriage is the foundation of society. That's his thesis. And faithfulness in marriage upholds society. It's absolutely necessary for a healthy society. And what Tolstoy wants his readers to see is that there is something larger than ourselves at stake in marriage, something sacred. There is something larger than ourselves at stake in marriage, something sacred. So that's the logos and the ethos. How does he actually put his novel together. Well, it's beautiful the way he puts his novel together. He, he almost called this book, instead of calling it Anna Karenina, he almost called it a tale of two marriages because you'll find in the novel two marriages that run, it's, just, it's, a, it's kind of like a parallel like this. There are two marriages, Anna and her husband Karenin, and then Levin and Kitty. So those are the two stories that run parallel to each other. But as you start reading the novel, you actually realize that they're not actually running in, in strict parallelism. There are two stories. He almost called it a tale of two marriages. But there's actually two protagonists. But one is the protagonist of a comedy, and one is the protagonist of a tragedy. So that's what's amazing about this novel. It contains both a comedy and a tragedy. So let's talk about Levin. So Levin and Kitty is the, the second story. So Levin is, he's the protagonist, he's, he's the first protagonist, or maybe he's the second one, but he's one of the protagonists. He's a wealthy man. He comes from um, this ancient kind of aristocratic circle. He has old money, and he prefers to live on the farm. He's an advocate of the peasants' rights, and he's a little bit socially awkward, right? So he's not like, he doesn't have all this refinement because he's spending all this time on the farm. He's not living in these social circles, going to these parties, et cetera, et cetera. And what kind of protagonist is he? He's the protagonist who seeks truth and virtue. And so it's Levin's story that's a comedy. Not comedy in the sense of ha-ha, funny, funny, right? But in the classical sense of comedy, right? Like the divine comedy. A comedy is a movement upward, right? Just like Dante's Divine Comedy, it, he goes from um, Inferno to Purgatorio to Paradiso. It's a movement upward. So Levin's story is actually a comedy. It's this movement upward. How does this movement upward work? Well, Levin is seeking always to know what is true and what is just. Now he's aware in the search for the truth, the truth, in the search for truth and justice, he's aware that there are discrepancies, right? Between the reality and the ideal. And what he wants to do is bridge that gap. 
He seeks to live by the moral laws of earthly society. And for Levin, marriage is their symbol. The laws of earthly society, marriage is their symbol. And he believes that by following these laws, by living according to truth and justice, the moral norms of society, he believes he will find fulfillment. But this is what's sad, right? Is that his way is a via negativa. He seems to be going downward. He seems to have less and less because, you know, he falls in love with this beautiful princess, um, uh, Catherine Shcherbatskaya, and her, name, her nickname is Kitty. And she is like, she's just, she's perfect in every single way. And he's in love with her, but she kind of rejects him, right? She's in love with someone else. And so, you know, he goes back to the farm, dejected, and he just seems to be, you know, and something's going wrong in his farm. So he just seems to have less and less and less and less. He doesn't live for himself, but for others. And what Tolstoy does is he shows us that this way that seems to be a bit via negativa is not, in reality, a movement downward. It's, in reality, a movement upward. Because what do we find at the end of Levin's story? He finds happiness and bliss that is crowned with faith and joy. Right? So it's, it's a gorgeous and brilliant portrait of this movement. Okay, that's, the one, that's one protagonist. The other protagonist is Anna. And Anna is the protagonist who is going to be the tragic figure. Now remember, she's actually modeled after those famous adulteresses in history. So Israel, the harlot, um, Madame Bovary, right? All those people. So Anna is much like them. She's one of the most famous, or she's among the most famous adulteresses in literature. And you know, we can have a lot of sympathy for Anna because she's a protagonist and she's seeking something. Levin is seeking truth and virtue. What's Anna seeking? Anna's seeking happiness. It seems innocent enough, right? She's seeking happiness. And so, sadly, her tragic movement, it's this movement that seems to be going upward, right? She seems to be having more and more. But she actually has less and less. Hers is a movement downward, right? That's what a tragedy is. Anna is seeking self-fulfillment at all costs. So she's concerned only with her reality, with her world, and she's grasping at love. She makes a choice for self that seems, again, to go upward, but in fact is going downward. I think we can all relate to that, right? You, you seem to be getting what you want, but you're actually alienating all the people who love you. Right? Or maybe you've seen that happen with someone you love. They think they're going upward, but they're actually going downward. Okay, so let's start with talking about Anna Karenina. Who is Anna Karenina? She's a noble woman. She's a happy woman. She's beautiful. She's the queen of St. Petersburg society. She helps others. She's wise. She's, in fact, remember we talked about women as symbolizing wisdom. She's a trusted counselor, right? There's another woman whose husband commits adultery, and she goes to counsel that woman, and she is able to encourage the woman to go back to her husband to accept him, right? So Anna upholds morality and Christian ideals in her speech. What's another thing about Anna? Anna is actually happily married to a man named Karenin. And it's actually beautiful. That's, for, that's the way in Russia, in Russia, I don't really understand. Some of you out there may understand Russian better, but this is one of the ways Russian works. Anna, Karenina. So this, the fact that they're bonded together in marriage is reflected in her name, right? Her name reflects her identity. Anna Karenina, it means something like Anna, 
of Karenin, right? Anna who belongs to Karenin, Anna who is one with Karenin, right? So that's why it's so fitting that Tolstoy chooses that as the title of his book, because he's examining Anna, Anna's identity. She will only find happiness as Anna Karenina, and not otherwise. So in the book, she is happily married. She's happily married to Karenin, who is a good man, a bureaucrat, a successful businessman. And Karenin has a piety for appearances, but it's a healthy one, right? So, you know, um, he doesn't want anything untoward, right? He wants his children to have good manners, etc. So it's a healthy and appropriate piety for appearances. He follows societal norms. He follows moral norms. As you read Anna Karenina, you have this sense about Karenin that he is an upright man. He's a moral man. He would never commit adultery. They have a good marriage, and Anna has been happy with him. I want to make a little side note here, because there's lots of different movies on Anna Karenina. To say that, just to say that there's no evidence in the novel itself that Anna has not been happy in her marriage. All the movies, they try to help us see, because they're trying to explain, but they don't, uh, anyway, we don't know what, I'm not sure exactly sure what they're trying to do, but they try to make us feel this great sympathy for Anna. And so they're not true to the novel, and they make, they make Karenin look like a really cold, nerdy guy. And he's actually not a cold, nerdy guy. He's actually very successful, morally upright, and he is a good man. And there's this beautiful um, kind of intimacy and love between them. And I'll, I'll read to you a passage in the book that illustrates that um, a little bit further down. Okay, so what happens in the story next? There's this shameless military man, Count Vronsky, isn't that a great name, Vronsky? Like it even sounds like what it, what it is. Okay. So he is taken with Anna's beauty, and he, he's crazy about her. He's insane for her love, and so he pursues her persistently. He's romantic. He's charming. And at first, Anna resists, right? Because this is so. It's improper. So she begs him to des to desist, but he keeps pursuing her. Keeps pursuing her. Keeps pursuing her. So I'm going to read to you from the text about this encounter that they have on the train. So Anna has met Vronsky at some parties, right? And he's always, he's obviously pursuing her in a romantic kind of way. And so Anna's leaving town because she has to go out on some kind of business. And all of a sudden she sees Vronsky on the same train. I didn't know you were going. And why are you going? She said, she's looking at Vronsky. Letting, the, letting fall the hand which had grasped the doorpost. An irrepressible joy and animation shone in her face. Why am I going, he repeated, looking straight into her eyes. You know that I am going to be where you are, he said. I cannot do otherwise. At, and at this very point, as though it had overcome all obstacles, the wind scattered the snow from the car roofs and began to flutter some sheet of iron it had, turned, it had torn off, while the low-pitched whistle of the engine set up a roar in front, dismal and lamenting. All the awesomeness of the blizzard now seemed still more splendid to her. He had uttered precisely what her soul yearned for, but which her reason dreaded. She made no answer, and in her face he beheld a struggle. Forgive me if what I have said displeases you, he said humbly. 
He had spoken courteously, deferentially, yet so firmly, so obdurately, that for long she could find no answer. What you say is wrong, and I beg you, if you are a good man, to forget what you have said, even as I shall forget it, she said at last. Not a single word of yours, not a single gesture, shall I ever forget, nor could I forget. Okay, that's pretty telling, right? So this, notice you catch this whole idea of the pursuit. And then you also see Anna's own vanity, right? You see her own, go her own desire to be like this goddess, right? Because her face is shining when he's there to meet her. But notice what she says to him. If you are a good man, forget what you have said, even as I shall forget it. Is he a good man? No, because he doesn't forget what she said. He doesn't forget. He keeps pursuing her. So what happens? After, after, this, and after all these encounters with Vronsky, there's one particular party. And at this one particular party, she begins to pay attention. So notice here she was able to ward off the temptation, right? But after he keeps beating her down, she finally gives in to the temptation. And Tolstoy brilliantly portrays what the misleading insight is. And it's precisely that, right? You will be as a goddess. And it's fascinating, right? This, um, it's a parallel to what happens to Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Because what did Satan say? You will be as God. So Tolstoy, in this world that he creates, has Anna as the new Eve, or as another Eve, with the same temptation. You will be like a goddess. How does she glimpse this temptation? I, you can be like a goddess. She glimpses it in the intensity of Vronsky's passion. And so she lets it take root in her heart. And she begins seeking daddy. Okay, so look at this. You have a modern novel following the classical paradigm. If you remember from your study of classical literature, what causes the downfall of the protagonist? But hubris, right? That overweening pride. And hubris in classical literature takes two different forms. In man, pride takes the form, this dream, you shall be as God. It takes the form of some kind of dream of power, right? More power than is really possible. So think about someone like Icarus, right? He wanted to get higher and higher and higher, and then his wings melt, right? And he falls to the sea and dies. So it's this dream of power, this hubris. Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, right? This dream of more power than is really possible. That's the form it takes in man. But in woman, it takes a different form. Hubris in woman, you shall be as a goddess. It's some dream of being the center of adoring worship, right? And any woman who's honest will say, oh yeah, right? She wants to be the center of adoring worship. She thinks she can be loved infinitely like a goddess. So what happens? She becomes wrapped in the illusion of a sentimental, mad passion, right? This imaginary, glamorous love. And it's not real, right? She wants to live in the what if instead of living in the what is. So this is the hubris that makes Anna tragic. So let's look now at the temptation scene as Tolstoy puts it. And I want you to listen in this temptation scene 
for the allusions to the presence of the devil. Because again, think about that. It's been suggested by the scholars, the literary scholars who have studied Annapurna, that Tolstoy is creating this parallel between Eve and Anna. Okay, so Anna, Karenin and Anna have gone to a party, but Anna stayed later than Karenin. And Karenin is staying awake to talk to Anna because of what was happening at the party, right? So Anna was spending too much time with Vronsky. Her, her conversation with him was way too animated and it was attracting attention. So Karenin wants to talk to her about this, okay? So um, I'm reading to you when Anna walks into the room, well, sorry, walks home. She walks into their house and Karenin is still awake and Anna um, is gonna speak to him. Anna came in with her head bent, playing with the tassels of her hood. Her face was glowing with a vivid glow, but this glow was not one of joyousness. It recalled instead the fearful glow of a conflagration in the midst of a dark night. On seeing her husband, Anna raised her head and smiled as though she had just waked up. You're not in bed. What a miracle, she said, throwing off her hood. And without stopping, she went on into the dressing room. It's late, Alexei Alexandrovich, she said from behind the door. Anna, I must have a talk with you. With me, she said wonderingly. She came out from the door and looked at him. Why, what is it? What about? She asked, sitting down. Well, let's talk then if it's so necessary, but it would be better to go to sleep. Anna was saying whatever came to her tongue and marveled hearing herself at her own capacity for lying. How simple and natural were her words and how likely that she was simply sleepy. She felt herself clad in an impenetrable armor of falsehood. She felt that some unseen force had come to her aid and was supporting her. Anna, I must warn you, he began. Warn me, she said, of what? She looked at him so simply, so brightly, that anyone who did not know her as her husband knew her could not have noticed anything unnatural either in the sound or in the sense of her words. But to him, knowing her, knowing that whenever he went to bed five minutes later than usual, she noticed it and asked him the reason. To him, knowing that every joy, every pleasure and pain that she felt, she communicated to him at once. To him, it meant a great deal to see that now she did not care to notice his state of mind, that she did not care to say a word about herself. <coughs> he saw that the inmost recesses of her soul that had always hitherto laid open before him were now closed against him. More than that, he saw from her tone that she was not even perturbed at that, but seemed to be saying straightforwardly to him, yes, it is closed now, which is as it should be and will be so in the future. Now he experienced a feeling such as a man might have who, returning home, finds his own house locked up. Right? Isn't that a fabulous passage? Right? And here, that's the very passage that I was telling you about, that you see there was this beautiful intimacy, this beautiful love. Right? He, Karenin noticed when Anna noticed, you know, that she noticed that he didn't go to sleep on time right? and wanted to know the reason. And when she was sad, when she was in pain, 
when she was happy, he, he would ask her and she'd want to tell him about it, right? So, so they have this strong, beautiful, happy marriage. But at this moment, what happens? When she decides to give in to the temptation of this affair with Ronsley, she has to close herself, right, to that relationship. So that's how he depicts this, um, this temptation scene. So shortly after the scene I just read to you, begins the adulterous relationship between Vronsky and Anna. And Tolstoy wants to depict for us, um, appealing to our imagination, what becomes of Anna when she gives into this adulterous affair. So this is actually one of the most famous scenes in the whole of Anna Karenina. And it's this famous horse race scene, okay? So I don't know if any of you are familiar with this horse race scene. So what's happening is um, Anna and Anna and Karenin, this is one of the things that they do, right? They don't have football games like we do. So they, they go to the horse races instead, right? So they're in the stands, this horse race, and the horse race field is set up so that all around is the, the obstacle course, right? The fence, they have to jump, they have to run this, they run that. So you can have your binoculars and watch the whole horse race from these stands. So Vronsky is actually really an accomplished rider, and he's won lots of these, right? So he's, ex he's expecting that I'm gonna win, right? Vronsky, okay? So Anna is with her husband Karenin in the stands. Karenin does not know about the adulterous relationship, right? And Anna, of course, is super excited because they're her, you know, the, she's the mistress of this man and he's in this horse race and he's gonna win, so she's excited, right? So she's watching. Okay, so this is what happens in the middle of the race. In the middle of the race, there's this jump, okay, for the horse. And Tolstoy takes great pains to explain to us how beautiful this horse is, right? This is a majestic, beautiful, spirited racehorse. Its name is Fru-Fru, okay? And Vronsky is like, you know, he's riding this horse and it's his favorite horse. And the horse jumps up across this uh, barricade, as it's supposed to, and Vronsky makes a fatal riding error. Why? Because he's a man without integrity. That's what Tolstoy is trying to show us. There's not this, there's not, um, uh, a harmony between his body and his spirit, right? He's, he's conflicted. So he's riding the horse and he makes this error, which is he pulls back on the reins of the horse. At the same time, he lands back on the horse's back. You know what this does? It breaks the horse's neck. And so as soon as he lands on the other side of the barricade, because he's, he's broken the horse's neck, the horse falls to the ground and lands on Vronsky partially. And so Vronsky, is underneath the horse and he's turning it out and meanwhile the horse is riding in pain on the ground okay meanwhile anna's up in the stands and she becomes distressed right she's she's standing up she, she doesn't know what's happening because is he has ronsky died right and so karenin is looking at anna's reaction he's a little bit disturbed because this is not appropriate right it's disproportionate and so meanwhile um Bronsky's gotten out from under the horse he's not hurt he sees one of his opponents ride by and you know, kind of make a gesture at him, like, nah, 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 nah. okay, and he's, Vronsky wants the horse to get back up. He's, he's, he's trying to get the horse to get back up. The horse can't get back up, why? Because he's broken the horse's neck, and this is, this is his beloved horse. So what does Vronsky do? Because the horse won't get back up. He kicks the horse, okay, and this is where we're filled with disgust. Like, he kicks this horse that he has destroyed. Why is this one of the most famous images in the entirety of the book? Because who is the horse 
Who is the beautiful, majestic, spirited creature that Vronsky is destroying? Anna, right? Anna is the horse. So it's, it's this, the image in a sense is base, right? If you think about the image, it's a base image. But it fittingly captures the baseness of adultery. Because Mag Anna is, she's magnificent. She's the spirited racehorse. Vronsky is no equal to her. He's a man without integrity. And so this is what Tolstoy symbolizes by this fatal riding error. And so what happens to Anna? He destroys her because she entrusted herself to him. And so this is the tragedy of idolatry, right? All sin is some form of idolatry. I love Rabbi Jack Bemperad's definition of, of idolatry. I think it's actually the best definition of idolatry. And it's actually what we see Anna doing. What is she doing? She attributes holiness to something that cannot bear the weight of it. Think about that. Idolatry is to attribute holiness to something that cannot bear the weight of it, right? So it's her dream, her unreality, her being a goddess. It can't bear the weight of what holiness really is. Okay, so meanwhile, what's happening back with Anna and Karenin? Karenin is, is, Anna is so upset, Karenin can't control it. He says, you, can't, you need to contain yourself. She says, I can't, I can't. So she's putting him, he puts her into this carriage to send her home. And as he's putting her in the carriage, she says to him, she says, she says to Karenin, I love him, I am his mistress, right? So she confesses. This is the moment where she confesses that she's having this adulterous affair. So he has to send her home, and shortly after that, because Karenin has to do what's morally and societally correct, the, the correct thing to do, he separates from Anna formally. And so what's very difficult about this is that Anna has to give up her son, Shiryosha, whom she says she loves devotedly. Right? So again and again, you see Anna confessing her love for her eight-year-old son, Shiryosha. But what do we see in her actions? In her actions, she is saying to her son, be damned. Right? She's forsaking her relationship to her son by the choice of adultery. Vronsky and Anna then move into this little love nest. Tolstoy, I think, paints very realistically what happens when Vronsky and Anna move into their loveness together? Once they move into their loveness, Vronsky is bored, right? Because he loves Anna, but man has to have a work, right? He has to be going outside of himself. And so what do you see, and what do we start to have for Vronsky? We got it with the horse race, but it starts to deepen here. It's this sense of loathing, right? This is pathos. This adulterous man who's destroyed this marriage Tolstoy evokes this feeling of disgust in us, right? That, that scene, him kicking the horse, right? It's imprinted itself indelibly on our imagination. He's showing us how despicable Vronsky really is. Now contrast this with Levin. Okay, so remember, Levin is the other guy. Levin's that simple farm guy, right? Who happens to also be very wealthy and aristocratic and all this kind of stuff. So he, what is he, how is he show, what's the image he gives us for Levin? I have to go to this side, because that was a Vronsky side. Okay, so, Levin. What is Levin like, okay? Levin is, he's strong, 
he's persevering, right? And actually he goes and he works side by side with the peasants because he wants to kind of like understand their plight and also like show that he's one with them, right? He wants to show the solidarity with them. And he is concerned about their welfare, concerned about the social, the social setting that they're in, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, you know what I love about the way Tolstoy depicts Levin? He depicts him as always out in nature, right? He's under the sky, he's soaking in the rain. When it starts raining, he just puts his face up to the rain, right? He has his hands in the dirt. He touches the barks of trees and stuff like this. And it's this whole idea that I think Tolstoy is trying to get across, is that here's a man who is immersed in, who loves reality as God has created it. Right? Look at Anna and Anna and Vronsky are escaping reality. Levitt immerses himself in reality. Right? Even when he's sad, right? after Kitty rejects him, what does he do? He puts his hands in the soil and he starts working. So Levin is a little bit socially awkward, okay? So there's this, um, he's socially awkward, but he's got this amazing physical integrity. Actually, he's like got an athletic build. And he was in this little village before, and he was um, he was actually like considered one of the skating champions, okay? So this is before Kitty rejected him. I'm gonna read you this little um, vignette. He was trying to win Kitty over, okay? So she, here she is, she's all dressed up in you know her beautiful Russian um, garb, and she's got the little muff, and her little ear muffs on too, a muff around her hand. And her she's got red cheeks because she's been skating, and her eyes are shining brightly, the sun is reflecting them. And um, here's Levin, and he's, he's gonna try to impress her, okay? So at that moment, so they're taking like kind of this, they're kind of on the side of the skating rink. At that moment, one of the young men, the best of the skaters of the day, now remember, Levin's a little bit older than these younger guys out there. He came out of the coffee house on his skates with a cigarette in his mouth. Taking a run, he dashed down the steps on his skates, crashing and leaping. He flew down, and without even changing the free and easy position of his hands, skated away over the ice. Ah, a new trick, said Levin. And he promptly ran up the steps to perform the new trick. Don't break your neck. This needs practice, Nikolai Shurdotskaya said to him, uh, shouted after him. Right? So his friends trying to say, don't, you don't try to do this. You can't do this without practicing. Okay. Levin went to the steps, took a run from above as best he could, and dashed down, persevering his balance, preserving his balance in the unwanted movement with his hands. On the last step, he stumbled but barely touching the ice with his hand, with a violent effort, recovered himself, and skated off laughing. And then he looks at Kitty, right? And Kitty is, Kitty is smiling, and she says, oh, what a fine darling chap he is. Kitty was thinking that at the very moment, as she came out of the pavilion with Mademoiselle Leon, and looked toward him with a smile of quiet kindness, as though he were her favorite brother. Okay, so, Notice this, this is like a moment of exaltation for Levin, right? Because what does every man want, like on your, on your first date or whatever, right? He's like, you tell this goofy joke and she laughs, right? What is, what, is it, what is it that happens at that moment? When he sees Kitty smile at something he's done, he gets this sense, I can make her happy, right? And so this is how Tolstoy paints for us like this beautiful, innocent portrait of this strong, and noble, self-sacrificing man, that he will be able to make her happy. And that's actually what happens. Um, and that's what we see you know, that in that comedy, that comedic movement. And their life is going to be crowned with joy and faith. Right? Kitty will actually bring him to RCIA. Um, <laughs> so Kitty will bring love into the faith. And, you'll, and you see this beautiful faith 
grow in Lenin. So he will be able to provide for her to make her happy. So how does, um, how does Anna end, right? So we know Vronsky, he looks like a hero, but we know that he's not a hero. This is so fantastic. You know, you look at um, Tolstoy's brilliance. How does Vronsky end the novel? You know how Vronsky ends the novel? With a toothache, right? Can you think of, can you think of anything that's, um, that kind of symbolizes this indignity, right? This weakness, this emptiness, this inactivity. So Vronsky ends a novel with a toothache. You know how Anna ends the novel? Okay, you want to plug your ears if you're going to read the book, because this is a spoiler for sure. Anna actually commits suicide, right? She throws herself in front of the train. Why does Anna throw herself in front of the train? Because this is the natural end, right? She was seeking death. That's what happens with Madame Bovary, right? She commits suicide also. I love the way, I can't find any better way to end than with the words of Louise Cowan. She says, in her turning away, she's talking about Anna, in her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness, Anna finds instead absolute nothingness. In her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness, Anna finds instead absolute nothingness. So that's what an adulteress can teach us about happiness. Thank you all again so much for coming. And I'm also happy to take questions privately afterwards. God bless you all. Thank you very much. <laughs>